are back again. It is Monday, April 13th. This is, in case you don't know what you're listening to or on the video feed if you're watching, this is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias. This is my partner in cinema crime, Greg Srizavazdi. Very good. I thank you so much, so much. And once again, another full show today. Um, Before we jump into it, though, I have to give a huge, huge, huge shout out to all the talent that keeps, you know, coming onto the show, asking to come on the show and supporting us, as well as all the publicists and all the listeners out there. Um, it was amazing last night. I was moderating a Q&A down at the Arclight, and some people actually came up to me and were telling me that we listen to the show. We love the show. So Just get that guy out of the show, though, that... We we love Brian. No, oh, yeah. yeah, they were saying we, we love we love the engineer Brian. He does such a we great job. We love the engineer Brian, does. and we yeah. love Greg. Okay. Of course, you are my attorney. They're loves both, you, so thank you. My, yeah, my attorney loves you. So, so that Brian. moderation, that Q and A panel, that thing went well across the sea, right? That's- it was for across the sea. We talked to the directors uh, Ezra and Nissan last week uh, live, mm-hmm. and uh, last night uh, I spoke with the incredible cinematographer John Kerry. Nice. And you know how I raved about the cinematography on that film. And got uh, a lot of inside scoop from John on what was happening and what his thoughts were in designing the look of that film. And also one of the producers, Alvaro Valente, um, who is no stranger to slam dance. And he has had films in slam dance before. He's also, he has his hands in all these films with a very international feel. Across the sea set in Turkey. He's got another one coming up that was just shot in South Korea about North Korea, which could prove quite That's interesting. Very interesting, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of good things that are that are going to be happening and coming up. Um, Do you get a quick feel on just a slam dance enthusiast? The crowd is it one kind of? Is it just a diverse array of movie? You fans? know, this was a really interesting crowd, and I think it's because of the very nature of the film. Um, a lot different than the crowd that was there for their opening night of Jake the Snake. I would assume a different yeah. crowd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, a much more mature crowd, but a very mm-hmm. I- interested crowd in in story and in film as opposed to the experience of, you know, seeing Jake the Snake on screen. Yeah. Or Joe Manganiello moderating the Q&A, you know. Yeah, that's a, that's a visual feast. That oh. is the, hey, <laughs> that is that's more. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to landscapes and humans, same thing. Hey, I mean, I've yeah. interviewed Joe a few times and had a one-on-one with him after yeah. Sabotage last year, and oh, cool. Before his directorial debut with La Bear and before okay. his book came out, and one of the nicest guys around. But it is a very visual feast. <laughs> so cool. But we've got some feasting of our own today. Paul Rockman, programmer for Slam Dance, the Arclight Slam Dance Cinema Club, and an accomplished and award-winning editor and filmmaker in his own right. Uh, Paul may have two segments with us today. He'll be calling in at eleven fifteen live uh, at eleven thirty. We're and every week until May 9th, We're going to be talking about with some of the legends of tv film and, and stage uh in support of the stage la benefit at the saban on may 9th to broadway from hollywood with love last week we had the immortal carol cook uh, memorable very <laughs> enthusiastic and energetic i was a bit intimidated in a good way carol is she is yeah. a force of nature yes and this week we've got equally 
equally memorable Nancy Dussault is going to be calling in at 1130. Um, And... She's she'll be talking about many things. Uh, undoubtedly, some of them <clears throat> will include too close for comfort. Okay, cool. And yeah. uh, maybe we'll have Paul back for a second part for the second half of the show. Uh, if not, we've got lots of uh, my exclusive with Kriv Stenders, the director of the absolutely hilarious dark comedy that's out right now with Simon Pegg. Kill me three times. Have you seen it yet? Yes, I, I really enjoy that movie. It's kind it of is. a film noir desert western. A la, a la Seven Psychopaths. A la Seven Psychopaths. Seven Psychopaths. Very underrated film. Yeah. Very much so. But yeah. Kill Me Three Times is just tremendous and shot on the western coast of Australia mm. on the ocean, which is still one of nature's greatest untapped uh, resources of beauty. And just a different look at Simon Pegg as well. Yes, very much so. Considering my first real look at Simon Pegg was when he did David Schwimmer's um, directorial debut, Run, Fat Boy, Run. I haven't seen that yet. You have to see it. Okay. You have to see it. That's all I can say. You have to see it. Tandy Newton's in it, I think. Tandy Newton's in it. So, Mm. and David did an, an amazing job for his first film. Which he then followed up when he directed The Very Powerful Trust. Yes. Two different films. Two very different films. So, but before we get into Mr. Rockman and talking about mm. Slam Dance and Arclight Slam Dance Cinema Club and stage, you've got a real treat for us today. You know, I just cut up a soundbite. I interviewed William Shatner a couple of weeks ago. He's promoting this stop motion animated show called Clangers. For the Sprout Network, it premieres in June um, on that show, Sunny Side Up. And I asked him the question. I didn't ask him a Star Trek question, although I wanted to. But I asked him how his, um, you know, with his work in music and stage with that one one man show and acting and directing, if his vision or his approach to storytelling has changed over the years. And he gave a pretty good answer. And I think everybody from two years old to 102 recognizes the truth in what you're saying. If there's a validity to what you're saying, if you've acquired whatever the writer has written as a truth, if, you're, if you understand the validity of what he's written or she's written, that it communicates itself in the same way that talking to a child of three, they understand that truth. So talking to a child of three is merely saying, here's the truth child as against saying to you here's the truth young man it's just a tone but the validity of what i'm saying is always there that's that's very astute yeah and he's looking at me while he's saying the validity and truth and i'm realizing well he has much more validity and truth than i i can ever have but it's really about what you bring to the story and people will it'll transmit that believability i think will transmit oh i I think you're absolutely right and uh, in coming weeks we will have some screenwriters joining us to talk about the belief and validity of story oh i had no idea that's that's a very i'm just all full of surprises (laughs) hey you surprised me this morning with um yeah i've got a william shatner interview here it's like james tiberius kirk you (laughs) bet your bottom dollar you know it's it is a cliche, and it's a well-worn and actually true cliche that if pe- if you don't believe it, people won't believe it. Yeah. So I just thought, coming from Mr. Shatner, that it actually holds a little bit more weight. Yeah, and it's yeah. and it's it's very interesting because 
that whole idea of you don't believe it, people won't believe it. Mm. That's one thing that we can see so much of with when we're looking at films, when we're reviewing films, right. whether the performance resonates. Yeah. Do we believe that? Because And generally it's because if we don't believe it, it's because the actor doesn't believe what they're doing. Yeah. So that that's a theme that runs through, you know, many. Which is why I loved Five to Seven, that romantic drama. Yeah. Anton Yelchin and Berenice Marlowe. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, it's out on VOD right now in select theaters. So Five to Seven. It's very believable, actually. It is. Actually. It is. I mean, yeah. I am in love with that film. Yeah. Yeah. So, but hmm. why don't we why don't we talk a little more about Kill Me Three Times? Yeah, you know what I love since we both love it. Uh, yeah, the thing I really enjoyed about Kill Me Three Times it it kind of is a blend of so many different genres, where it's mm-hmm. you know it's set out in out in Australia, right? Western coast, western yeah. coast, and it's beautiful to look at. Great desert landscapes, but it also has kind of a fil- film noir ish kind of existential tinge to it as well. And then they throw in some comedy. Which is kind of cool. And it's very dark black comedy. Yeah. 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 And which creates this beautiful juxtaposition between, you know, the beauty and the light of the sand, the surf, the sea, the blue, the aqua waters, the blue skies, the sun, and then the darkness of this fueling what the undertones of the story itself. Yeah, it is. It is dark. But I think mainly the, the attitude of Kill Me Three Times, even though it is pretty violent. Mm-hmm. There's, I hate to say it, there's kind of a weird kind of light touch to it as well. Yeah. So. Very much so. And having said that, let's hear what the wonderful director, Chris Stenders, had to say about that juxtaposition, creating that juxtaposition. How did you find this juxtaposition and develop it? Well, it was, um, it's really interesting because, you know, when I read the script, I went, oh, wow, this is so much fun. This is. This is a movie that I can just relax with and have fun with mm. and not be slave to some kind of authenticity. Um, and it was just one of those great opportunities to just create a movie world, what I call a movie world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like a bit like a fairy tale in that uh, anything can happen um, and it has its own rules. And as you said, it has a timeless quality to it. So, and that was very deliberate. Um, so I just love the idea of creating this 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 kind of universe for these six characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and the great advantage was that we Screen West, who are the, uh, the the state film funding body, gave us a large chunk of change to come over and shoot over there. How nice of them! We just had this fantastic theatre, this great stage in which to set the story on. So it was a very simple, straightforward process of going right. Okay. It's beautiful. It's basically the three colours will be the blue of the sky, the the aqua green of the water, and the red blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there were that was the palette, and it was just great to sort of uh, keep multiplying on that or building on mm-hmm. that, that 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 template. And that's I think he succinctly you know did capture what he wanted to do. Yeah, the movie has a lot of really cool elements to it. One of the cool elements is the casting of, especially if you like. Movies like Against All Odds and FX, mm-hmm. just the casting of Brian Brown. That and actually, later on in the show today, we will hear we will hear oh. Kriv talk about the oh, casting cool. of Brian Brown. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of the fun elements of the film. And uh, in a couple weeks, you'll hear my part of my interview with Luke Hemsworth because between. 
Chris Hemsworth in Avengers on May 1st. Yeah. Liam Hemsworth in Cut Bank, which is on VOD now. Love that film, by the way. Love that film. And Luke Hemsworth in Kill Me Three Times. The three Hemsworth boys will be... They will be battling for your box office dollars. Mm -hmm. And I actually did have a chance to ask Luke, which brother should the... moviegoers support so it's quite interesting what he what he will be have to say about that but that's for a couple weeks because i think we'll time it to the avengers and see if the older brother can get a leg up on the younger brother you know it's great you have all these it's like you have a vault filled with interviews that i don't even know about and you're just surprising me right now so that's (laughs) it's a good thing i like it i like it so well see if i had more time i would have brought out part of my bill shatner interview and brought it today don't yeah don't want up me, please. <laughs> no, no my, mine's from a couple how, years ago. How was that? How did that go, your Shatner interview? When I interviewed yeah. him a couple years ago? Was that for Shatner's World, his one-man show? Or? No. I interviewed okay. him when he did the voicing for uh, the animated film that I'm blanking on, the Weinstein film. Let me check. I, thank God for you and your little, and, and your little laptop here. My little laptop. Your little laptop. Yeah, Weinstein yeah. film. Okay, but anyway, Sigmund did the score. Okay. No, it was it was lovely and it was funny because Bill and I actually got to catch up because we oh. first met 34 years ago. Okay. When I had first come out to LA, um he his barber, hairdresser, okay. was on Ventura Boulevard and I, and we go he would go into the Sambo's coffee shop sometimes. And we would be in there. And Sambo's George, and Coffee Shop. Wow. Takai would be there. Um, Walter Koenig would be there. And a friend of Walter's would be there. So it would be, and that was the first time Bill and I ever met. And we would see each other quite often in Sambo's. That's great. That so, and then I also, I actually did some work on a TJ Hooker. Okay. Uh, I worked on Hooker a couple, on second unit a few episodes. So I got to see... You know, not only Bill, but Jimmy Darren and Jimmy Darren, who I interviewed at length last year for uh, the Stage LA benefit. Great singer. He was sick. Yeah. He couldn't make that. He's performing this year. Oh, awesome! So yeah. I'll be pulling out some of uh, maybe some of Jimmy's stuff as we also reminisced oh, because we actually go back the first time he ever saw me and met me. I was three or four years old on the set of American Bandstand in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, you have a. Definite through line here. I, so when you see everything so. coming full circle, it's it's so much fun. But yeah, Bill and I had a great time. And then when we got to catch up, and uh, then I did, you know, some little stuff uh, from helping promote his horse his horse show for charity that he does every okay, year. Cool. But yeah. uh, no, I adore him. I was. I think this was my first time interviewing him. I was surprised that he was really friendly and really self facing. Actually, yeah, he had confident as well. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, he is just, he is so much fun, and I just adore him, and I, I love the journey that he's taken. And also, as part of the Star Trek journey, yeah. Sally Kellerman, who is appearing at stage and who I just interviewed, and actually my interview with her will be out probably this afternoon. Okay. Um, people don't realize this. Sally was the female <clears throat> femme fatale. For James Tiberius Kirk in Bill Shatner's pilot episode for Star Trek. That I did not know. Okay. So 
as Sally has admits yeah. readily admits, without her, be, Sally Kellerman being involved in Star Trek, we right. might never. James Kirk might never have turned out to be the womanizer he became. <laughs> womanizer, I, I consider oh, well seasoned traveler. Well seasoned traveler for that word through the galaxy, through the yeah, through the, through, through the cosmos. And speaking of cosmos, we're going through the cosmos now and. I have the wonderful, incredible programmer and editor, Paul Rockman, on the line. Hello. Hey, Paul. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Fine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Were you... Were yeah. You... No, thanks for having me. Oh, now, are you here in L.A. or are you back in New York right now? I'm in New York right now. Well... You caught, you caught me in New York, but I'm back and forth a lot. I I know because you've got you're doing you know you're editing you're filmmaking now and you actually are you program not only at Slamdance but were you not involved in the programming of the ArcLight Cinema Slamdance Club? Well, yeah, a little bit. The um, you know the the ArcLight Cinema Club is now monthly, which is great. But uh, we've been programming Slamdance, what we've called Slamdance on the Road for years. Mm-hmm. So it's really an extension of that. But um, I also I've I've also been programming similar screenings at the IFC Center here in New York for Slam Dance for like the last ten years. Yeah. So um, it's something we've been going on. But the, the ArcLight Cinema Club, you know, the the monthly having the monthly venue, you know, right in Hollywood is great. It's something. It's funny. It's something Slam has been looking for for like twenty two years. <laughs> and do, don't our, you wish? In our home city in L.A., and it finally happened. Hey, don't you wish that, that they had that when you had your films at Slamdance? Uh, oh, yeah, that would have been awesome. <laughs> that, that would have been, I mean, amazing. It's just an amazing venue, and it's a great place for Slamdance to find support. And, uh, you know, the audience is coming, so it's 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 working. There's one tonight, actually, uh, Dennis Rodman's a documentary, um, one of our more provocative and interesting docs, uh, Dennis Rodman's Big Bang in Pyongyang, which is really this kind of behind-the-scenes, almost fly-on-the-wall look at his at his second trip to, to Pyongyang. Um, and it was directed by an Irish director, Colin Offlin. Um, and uh, that's tonight. So, And that's you know, an interesting mix good. right there. Irish director Dennis Rodman in North yeah. Korea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes it special. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you? Now, I I, d- I moderated the Q and A last night for Across the Sea, stunning, mm. stunning film. Um, and I understand I'm going to be doing some more of your little gems that you have programmed in here. What do you look for as a programmer? Be it for whether you're programming for. IFC in New York, whether you're programming for Slam Dance on the Road or whether you're programming for the New Cinema Club? Um, well, the, the Slam Dance on the Road and the Cinema Club is primarily an extension of the film festival. So we'll reach back from, you know, the current festival, the most current festival, all the way back to 22 years of Slam Dance to mm-hmm. find films to bring back um, on the road. Um, Slam Dance isn't a festival that's ever been genre dependent. Like we've never been a festival that like, Oh, you know, we're about, um, you know, uh, romantic comedies or we're about horror films or we're, we're very, very eclectic. Um, it's, you know, the slam dance is programmed by, um, 
people who've been involved with the festival, mainly alumni from the festival, both you know writers, directors, producers, actors, all filmmakers who've been connected to Slamdance in some way in terms of what it's about um, program the festival. So it's really about finding you know those films that tell a great story that hit you a certain way. Um, it's it's very subjective. That's kind of how it's done. Is there anything that... Ju- Last week, I know we were talking to Ezra and Nissan about Across the Sea, and one of the things... Ezra is a repeat... A repeat participant at Slamdowns and repeat, yes. wi- and repeat winner. Um, so one of the things that she pointed out... She described slam dance and all the ventures, you know, all the tentacles that it's using to reach out uh, to moviegoers and to expand the the cinematic experience. She described slam dance as being fearless. Um, well, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a, yeah, fearless. You know, there's there's many ways of understanding that. I mean, I think part of well. The way the festival was founded was definitely fearless. I mean, we were just like, screw this. We're taking our own films. We're going to Park City, and we're going to show up, and we're going to get noticed. And uh, so in a way, the roots of it in that sense are are fearless. But I, I think when, you know... Independent filmmaking is is fearless. You know the the type of films that Slamdance programs, the types of filmmakers that come to Slamdance, you know, mainly first time, first time filmmakers. You know, you have to be fearless to get a movie done. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we've always tried to come up with our own ideas, our own ways of doing things. We've been able to survive for twenty two years in Park City. Um, uh, there's kind of an ingrained fearlessness. It's a little bit of a punk attitude, I guess, that keeps uh, that keeps it moving forward. But um, yeah, that's a good way of describing it. But but you know, you got to be fearless and not stupid, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. You know, and I think that that's what we try to be. Oh, just wondering, even with just the advent and the rise of digital filmmaking and easier access to Final Cut Pro and editing on your maybe laptop. Is it still for indie filmmakers still a swimming upstream process as far as getting their film made? Even with great, better, more access to technology, it's still a hard process. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think the, uh, listen, the, the tools have been great. So it's, it's created more physical accessibility to the tools. And I think a lot of people are making films you know, at a cost or for nothing, quote unquote. Um, but it's still hard to get. There's so much, so many different types of energies go into making a film, and it's so hard to to, to grapple all that. There's the technical side, there's the creative side, the the actual creating. You know, finding a great story and implementing that story with other people onto you know, a production and into characters and, and and then, you know, exposing those characters into a frame and then cutting them together. It's an enormous, enormous process. So that never changes. It's always it's always an upstream battle. I think that it's become more crowded, uh, in the one sense. And that adds to some of the difficulty. Um but uh 
you know, the good stuff, you know, good material with positive, great people who are used to, uh, can swim upstream healthily, uh, they'll survive and they'll get their films made. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I was talking to Peter Baxter last night, uh, one of your partners in crime. And we were talking about editing, and especially because editing is one of your big fortes. Yeah, my, my background. Yeah, my background was as an editor when I first started. Now, have have you seen in films that get submitted at the festival level and that are emerging as being fan favorites, audience favorites, and are making the circuits? Do you see that because of technology that we're losing some of the? cinematic edge and some of the the smoothness and the beauty that we saw for years with traditional editing not too many filmmakers are are doing montages superimpositions fades swipes Mm -hmm. generally most edits now are hard short fast cuts or cut to black Mm -hmm. you know i think um this is true i mean i think that's a trend uh that started very that that started evolving quicker since the MTV, since the music video MTV days. Um, you know, you really started to see things getting cut quicker. Um, but it was still for the big screen. I think most recently, what I'm seeing in the editorial washdown process, as 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 I call it, is I think you know the advent of the smaller screen, whether it's iPads, iPhones, or the television screen. And and this whole thing of TV being so hot and being the next cinema is kind of madness because um, it's really not. I, I think a lot of editing in the last two, three years have come back down to, well, you know, let's make it so everybody can understand it on the small screen. And you're down to these, you know, talking heads, talking to each other, pushing plot. So everything is kind of becoming television. Mm-hmm. Whereas cinema was always the extreme opposite of that. You know, how can you avoid telling the story <laughs> with any talking heads <laughs> talking to each other? So uh, that's what I see a lot. Um, uh, I, I don't think the technology is to blame anymore. It's not like the tools allow you to cut differently or faster. I think that the uh, the tools of how people are watching films and how people are making it through this kind of cross-platform and devices is affecting editing as well. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know, do you, I, I just have this very curious question, Paul. I have a good friend, and I never asked him this question, but he's a DP, and I asked him what influenced his work and his compositions, and he said, well, I'm a huge, avid fan of punk rock and its genre, and he used to play for a band as well, and he goes, everything I do is infused in, in that, in my mm-hmm. TV work. Um, I'm just wondering for you, with all those facets of filmmaking, how has mm-hmm. that influenced your filmmaking? Well, you know, I started my filmmaking in the kind of hardcore punk world. You know, I, I was in that, I was exposed to that world. I was like a freshman in college, and I was kind of hanging out with, like, high school kids from the area in Boston where I was in school, and they were doing all these kind of, it was the, the birth of hardcore. And um, there was kind of an ethos, a very DIY you know, the DIY movement has its roots there, and there was this ethos of, like, let's just do this stuff ourselves and put it out ourselves. And I picked up cameras and started shooting those bands, and eventually I wanted to be a music video director, and that's what I did, you know, for part of my career in L.A. in, in the late 80s, early 90s, directing music videos. So um, that whole world... Um, 
that, that there is a certain ethos, a way of thinking, a way of uh, of um, doing things that's very that gets kind. Of, you know, if you spend several years in any of those communities as a punk rocker and the hardcore community, you know, you just get embedded with this sense of um, you know, do it any way you can. And um, I think that that's kind of a, a, a way of thinking that a lot of people who have been exposed to that are, are, are have in common. So, yeah, there is a bit of that. Now, with your whole background in music videos, and I know 34 years ago, early in my production career, I was doing a lot of music videos, um, not working on any of the harder core stuff, you know, working on things like Rick Springfield videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you do you find that music video is getting to be a lost art? Is it changing and taking the shape so often in the form of opening titles for films? Yeah, uh, you know, it had a big influence at, at a certain time. It's definitely still present, and I think there's a big comeback in music videos with YouTube and stuff. Mm-hmm. And people are mm-hmm. making them for YouTube, but you know they're framed and edited differently for YouTube. You know, I'm noticing this trend of certain medium shots, and you know, so technically I look at that too. But but I think that's a big deal. I think people get a lot of views, a lot of exposure through this through these mediums. You know. Um, I mean, at one point, all the eyeballs were on MTV, all the teen eyeballs. And, uh, you know, I remember that. And then the eyeballs went away. Right now, all the eyeballs are on YouTube. And, you know, in all likelihood, they'll go away from there eventually <laughs> and go somewhere else. But um, I think uh, I think music video is still alive. I think people still love doing them. I haven't done any in years. I, you know, I did, you know, over 100 music videos over the 8, 9, 10-year period and. It was awesome during those days, and I think it's different now. But mm-hmm. um, as long as there's music, there's always going to be music videos, you know. Do you do you see things a shift coming in terms of the way things are edited? Instead of things being edited with this whole YouTube concept in mind, or with this multi-platform itty bitty telephone smartphone yeah. screen in mind, do you see it coming back to the bigger picture? Shall we say? Well, yeah. I you know I. I have to live, I I always live, you know, everything is cyclical, you know, and you always hope that it stays that way, that cycles will go away, things will get burnt out and go back to what things were the way, you know, there, there's a cycle. And I do think that, you know, everything is so hot on this YouTube and television, and television is where it's at, and television is where the money's at, and television this, television that, that people are going to go, man, there's so much freaking television, then it starts to get bad, and then you start to get bored with it, and people, you know, then all of a sudden a couple of great movies will have a chance to really shine because everything else is so bad, and then you go back to cinema. You know, so I hope those cycles happen uh, and continue, but... um I think, uh, you know, and, and listen, there's all these directors like Chris Nolan and, and uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino. They're all, like, still shooting on film. They're just they're pushing to save all that, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, it's, um, it's funny how in these digital worlds, you know, what, what tends to happen. And I, I, I have yet to see how it's really going to apply to film. But, you know, in music, you know, vinyl has made a huge comeback. And mm-hmm. and it's it's a audiophile thing, you know. Can there be something like that in with cinema? We'll see. It'd be nice 
It would be yeah, nice. Yeah, it has to be really big, though, to, for it to yeah. really be anything. Because it, it's, so, it's such an expensive art form, it needs an audience. Now, with your technical expertise, is that something that you, also, that you implement when you're fighting for films that you want to get programmed at Slamdance? Um, you know... Do you look more at story it, or... Yeah, no, I think, you know, I don't... Yeah, yeah, it's really about story and inter- impact. And am I entertained? Am I affected? Is this film... Is this film speaking to me, you know? Um, it, you know, I got to say, technically, for young filmmakers who are trying to get into their first film, film festivals or for... For any any type of movie, really, you know, the first twenty minutes of your film are, are crucial, mm-hmm. which is crucial because if you really, if you're not successfully setting up what your film is about and, and drawing people in in the first twenty minutes, it's you know, the odds are already hugely against you. <laughs> are there? You know? Do you have any favorites that you've seen come out of Slam Dance? that still stay with you or any favorites from the big screen that have influenced you and your perspective? Well, that's, it's such a hard question. My favorites are always shifting and changing, but, um, you know, there was a few, there was a few films early on, uh, at slam dance that, that still stick with me. Um, Daniel Harris's Bible and gun club, uh, was a film that won the grand jury prize and, was so cool and provocative for its time. Um, it was basically a, a narrative take on um, the Maisel Brothers uh, salesman, the documentary. Mm-hmm. But it was about these guys out in Vegas who sell guns and Bibles and um, <laughs> that whole kind of messed up world. So that, that's a great movie. Um, that's just a great image when you say it that way. Well, yeah. Well, it's a great movie. And then um, <laughs> Surrender Dorothy was a, was a great, memorable film. Um, you know, I, I every time somebody asks me the, the favorites question, my mind goes blank. <laughs> you know, it's like an automatic trigger. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I tend to gravitate always towards cinema from the 70s early 80s mm-hmm. you know i'm always revisiting those eras 60s you know i try to go I, you know i watch a lot of old films i mm-hmm. watch a lot of old movies it's interesting how you know everybody's saying like oh yeah everything is just going to be subscription everything's on i i gotta say like 60 70 for the percent of the stuff i want to watch sometimes i can only find on dvd somewhere yeah. <laughs> you know there's no way you can find this stuff streaming Mm-hmm. You know, and these are not obscure. I was trying to watch uh, the last detail a couple of weeks ago, oh, yeah. uh, the Hal Ashby movie, yeah. a superb and, um, film. And I'm like, damn, th- this movie is not streaming anywhere. I can't even watch it if I wanted to um, with a, with any kind of a digital device. I'd have to have a DVD player. Now, can I watch Four Dogs Playing Poker on a streaming device, or do I have to go out and buy No, Four Dogs Playing Poker is... Well, actually, it's going to come. The producers are actually going to... That was an early 2000 film. It was the first movie I directed that I was hired as a director. And and that is going to come out digitally, from what I understand. I, I don't have a date for you, but it's not available. 
It was, it was uh, uh-huh. yes. back in those days, that was acquired, that was bought by Showtime, and Warner Home Video did the DVD. And those deals are over, so. It, it, four dogs are just lying in a pound somewhere, just waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it'll surface. Oh, my. So what do we have to look forward to throughout the rest of this first course of Cinema Club through the summer? Can you divulge so, anything? So t- so tonight is Dennis Rodman's Big Bang in Pyongyang. Uh, definitely entertaining. It's a, it, that Tonight's going to be a fun night at, at um Slam that's at the Arclight. Uh, the next week, um, there's an Italian documentary called uh, Trees That Walk, and it's all about trees and the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a, you know, uh, it's actually a really great documentary, so mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend that. And then we have some more dates uh, coming up in later April and throughout the whole summer. Yeah. And it's going to be year-round. Uh, I think that we keep booking the shows as we go. We're, we book them about a month or two in advance. Okay. I don't I don't have any more, any more titles yet, but um, we'll be there. And then we'll be doing some um, Slam Nets on the Road in New York at the IFC Center in New York probably in sometime in June. Mm-hmm. And in the fall, oh, and uh, if you go to the Slamdance website, uh, you can see Slamdance on the road. And you know, last year we played in well over a dozen cities. Uh, we brought these films, so um, you know, just trying to keep movies in the cinema, as which is where they should be to begin with. Yeah, <laughs> Paul, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. This has been absolutely fascinating. Oh, and thank you. This has been fun. I mean, and I hope that as you get more titles and you find out more and, you know, Slam Dance on the Road and with the Cinema Club, that you will keep us in the loop and join us again from time to time. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Just um, And if you ever get another film made, know. you know, if you ever get another film yeah. of your own made. You know? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, that's happening. I have a, I'm finishing one and starting another. So we can talk about that when they're ready. Terrific. And I will stream okay. American Hardcore, right? I can stream that. American Hardcore, yeah, you can, you can, you can stream that. That's okay. got a legitimate distributor. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> that is readily available Thank on you, multiple sir. platforms. And not pirated. <laughs> legitimate. There is money yeah. involved. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's one of those events that you, you win at. And then, you know, some you win, some you lose. Well, you're going to have you'll have to call back in the future and quiz him on it to make sure he really watched it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Take thanks, care, guys. Thanks, Thank Paul. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we're taking a short break and we'll be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we are back. And now, although we've been running a little bit late today, I have the wonderful Nancy Dussault on with me. Hello, good morning. Hi, Nance. How are you? I'm great, and I'm a little late in calling you, and I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. You know, we had a lovely filmmaker and a, a programmer for Slam Dance that, you know, has many, many things to talk about to fill time. You know how live is. You know, you go with the flow. That's right. Uh, that's right. I was so excited because I got a, 
couple of other jobs to do and was uh, emailing my little brain out, and that takes me a while. Wait, <laughs> wait, jobs, jobs, as in film yeah. and, TV, and TV appearances? <laughs> no, no, oh. they're all things, which are, which is great, which is great. So okay. Yeah. How are you? I'm fine. It's been so long. What a whole four days since we last spoke. I know. I know it. <laughs> and this is this is just. I thank you so much for joining us to talk about stage. You know, you got a tough act to follow after Carol last week. Oh boy, I, I could I can imagine. Uh, well, you're a dear friend, and I'm always. Uh, she quite. Uh, I'm going to say you say intimidates me. She is so quick and so witty and so wonderful. Uh, and she's, of course, one of the highlights of the stage benefit every year. So, uh, as she should be. <laughs> well, you're. Hey, I got to tell you, you're one of the highlights, not only for me, but other people that I've been talking to, telling them that you are going to be performing and appearing this year. And they're oh, like, thanks. they are just thrilled, and everybody remembers you for you know the younger generation the crowds that i see they remember you for too close to for comfort and all the reruns that they that they're watching which is great you know it really is great i mean they've run the whole series i don't even get that channel because i'd actually kind of like to see them (laughs) well gee that's why i keep putting up with time warner cable so i get that channel that's right (laughs) yeah and and Tina, I believe it is. But anyway, it's been great. I now have, because of it, I now have a fan club. And I really, they're all so darling. And I said, God, I really wish I'd had you about 30 years ago. But I'm really grateful that I have you now. <laughs> oh, do you know what the average age of the fan of your fan club members are? I don't. I think they're, they, they range from their 20s to like into their 40s. Wow. That, so, is, fan- that is fantastic. It's fantastic. You know, so uh, uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, this is a woman who does not Twitter or do all those things. <laughs> so this is, this is all on Facebook and <laughs> doing it all that way. Nancy's do you part- Twitter. Do Twitter. Do you do all those things? <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I have to. But as my cohort here, as Greg always tells me, he's trying to make me more social media savvy. It's like Facebook was a big step for me. Twitter was yeah. an even bigger step. Now I'm trying to figure out this Google Plus and right. Pinterest. Yeah. I have no clue. I know I signed up for Pinterest, uh, and they give me notices, but I don't know how to to activate what I'm interested in. You know, to keep it on my okay. Well, my, <laughs> if I anyway, but I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, I'm I'm actually going to call a young young student I have, a vocal student, have, have her come out. <laughs> And uh, get me a little hit. My husband gets a little impatient trying to uh, help me stay with it. So, well, once you figure out, you can tell me because I, I'm. <laughs> Nancy, is part of the joy in what you do in your profession is sharing your craft, whether it's whether it being a life on the stage or um, acting for television. You can actually share your wealth of knowledge with with students from all walks of life. That's right. That is right. Uh, and I like that. I mean, I've been working a long time. Uh, I started working professionally when I was about 16, when I was in college. And, uh, you know, it took me a long time to know that I, how much I knew or what I had learned. Uh, and everyone, and I was always encouraged to start teaching, and I think that's when I kind of understood everything better, including myself. So it's really been quite a trip for me. Uh, I still like the theater the best. 
<laughs> I think. I mean, television has been great. Yes. And actually, uh, it got to a point where my manager said, if you don't come out to L.A. and do more television, I'm having trouble getting you jobs in the theater because they want people who've been on TV who are, you know, instantly recognizable. So, and I lucked out. I came out to L.A. to get a series, and I got one right away. So. You sure did. That was that was a really lucky lucky break. Uh, but you know, you've also you were on the very cutting edge, breaking the glass ceiling back in '75 when you were co-hosting Good Morning America with David Hartman. You were one of the one of the, the groundbreakers for this morning, you know, TV chat. Oh, I know it. You know, it was so interesting when that happened. Uh, I kept getting a call from ABC, and I thought. The gentleman who was calling me, I thought he was going to ask me to do another benefit, and I've been doing so many, and I didn't re- return the call right away, which, of course, is extremely unprofessional. And I went out to L.A., and then I got another call, and then I went back to New York, and then now by this time, almost a week had gone by, and finally I returned the call, and when he told me what it was, I, I was absolutely stunned. <laughs> and I said, how did my name even come up for a job like this? And it was from being on talk shows. And uh, so when I I had to audition for it, I went and met all the heads of ABC, and then they had me do an audition with David Hartman, who I knew, which I think mm-hmm. was a huge plus. And what he did was he interviewed me, and then I interviewed him, <laughs> and then they had me do commercials, because I used to do commercials on the show, too. And then we started. I mean, I think there was a week, and then we started. Uh, it was really, really rough and scary at the beginning, and uh, I had to write stuff. I had to do the weather sometimes, and that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> There's something about Nan- that- something about Nancy Dusso as a weather girl that really just. Uh, I remember when you did it, but it was it, it, a lie just- because you know they, what happened was the, the man in Chicago. Something happened to him because he always did it, and so for a few days I had to do it. You know, and they have. You don't see what you're talking about. You know, it's all done with that <laughs> blue screen. And I mean, at least at that time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was a joke. I'd be pointing at South Dakota instead of uh, Florida. Or, I mean, it was like a comedy routine. It was really like a comedy routine. Uh, so will you be... Got it. Will you bring... And it was, what was interesting, what people don't know at that time, that show, and I think it still is, it was not under the news department. It was under entertainment. Mm-hmm. So that's and they really wanted to try something different. Uh, it was it, what made it so difficult was they only had four writers on a two-hour show. So uh, I mean, you know, I came in one morning at five, and they said, "Would you write the uh, Hollywood this and write this?" And I went, "Write? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, write?" <laughs> and they would send me out to do. They would send me out to do interviews where I had no producer, no nothing. It was me and a cameraman. They didn't even, I hardly even knew what I was supposed to, you know, uh, zero in on. I mean, what the interview was supposed to be really about. Uh, And then later I learned that I should have gone to editing all the time. I mean, it was just, it was so much coming at me that it was, and I was exhausted every moment. (laughs) I wasn't used to getting up at three and four in the morning. So it was it was a, a strain in a way, but God, I got to meet everybody. Well, some, and, and it's given you you know the the legs on which your your longevity in this industry is has you know sustained you. I think so. I think so. 
because that does become, we talked about it before, mm-hmm. that becomes what the business for everyone is about. I mean, I got every, which is lucky, I got every first job I ever went out on. But then it becomes, your whole career then becomes how to to keep yourself going, how to reinvent yourself, how to, you know, spread out, how to, just how to make yourself constantly interesting and <laughs> Mm-hmm. And desirable, you know, people to uh, want you, and that becomes a real challenge. And that's that's a, you know, today when younger people ask me about the business and how to get in it, and I mean, I can, I don't have a lot of answers for them because it's so different now. Yeah, very much they so. Sure are cre- yeah, they're really creative. I'll have to say. <laughs> so, so how creative are you and David Galligan going to be on May 9th for your performance for stage? How are those rehearsals coming? That's a wonderful question because I'm not sure yet. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> this show is going to be very different because they are they're doing as you know from um, songs that were movies originally that eventually became uh, a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. So I know we're doing "She Loves Me" uh, from that musical, which is probably one of my favorite shows of all time, and. I mean, they're doing a real little setup for it, you know, like a little scene. And we haven't, I, like I have a rehearsal this week. I can tell you more on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it is going to be a little more inventive for me and David than, than normal, you know. Uh, so, and he always, which I like, he always lets me talk a little bit before mm-hmm. I sing. I mean, that's kind of evolved. I mean, Carol does that always. Carol does that, whether Carol would be allowed to do that or not. Oh, yeah. Of course. And everyone loves it, and they let her and love it. I like to do it just because if I'm anxious or nervous, because I do still get nervous, uh, it it just helps me calm down, and it helps me. I just like it. Mm -hmm. I just like it. You know, so, and I don't, I mean, I'm not talking about a long thing that uh we'll see we'll see like i said i really am not sure what all we're doing yet but uh i know what i'm singing and <laughs> that's that's always a plus that's a big plus that's, and i even know the song and that's a big plus <laughs> that's that's an even bigger plus <laughs> yeah it's going to be a great evening and i i know i said this to you before that it's uh this is the best deal in town if people really want to be entertained and do something worthwhile at the same time because um, the cast of performers is extraordinary and for me and i bet it's the same for you there there is nothing like seeing people live oh perform live performance i I love i love television and i'm somewhat of an addict television addict but that i uh i really love to see real people Mm. (laughs) at the moment there's nothing like seeing a songstress or a singer perform live especially in a theater like the saban with such incredible acoustics you're in a beautiful setting you have that whole ambient tone that's set and then the, the song the voice just fills every yeah. cavern yeah it's a big place <laughs> it's and it's so so beautiful i was talking to sally kellerman who's also performing uh, for stage she's never performed at saban before she's gone there but no. she's, she's never performed yeah. Now, That'll be fun for her. I'll be eager to see her again because she's so bloody interesting. She's wonderful. So uh, well, and she's doing a Sondheim piece. Oh, you don't get to, but she is. 
<laughs> Forget about what is she doing. What is she doing? Do you know? I do, and offhand, I can't remember what she told me, but I know she's been working with her her longtime arranger Bob Epstein and with David. Um, because it's got a lot of high notes, low notes, a lot of wrangle, musical wrangling going on. Yeah. As most Sondheim pieces do. Oh, yeah. Well, she'll be fine. She's so used to... She's a great cabaret performer. Yeah. And a great, great performer. So she'll, she'll do it. I like doing something that, that I'm... I, of course, I have learned things for, for these benefits, but I do like the comfort, I must confess, of something that is kind of really in my voice and, you know, I'm used to doing, mm-hmm. is that I can really, then I can really have more fun. Yeah. Just a curious question, Nancy. When you're part of a production or a performance that really connects with the audience, is there a way to describe that kind of feeling where it kind of merges? You can actually feel that that organic uh emotion there is you know for it took me a long time to i mean i i think i really learned it the best when i finally started doing cabaret because there you really you really have to look at people and you you have to establish a relationship almost immediately with an audience you know when you're in a play or a a musical it's, it's sort of a different kind of relationship, but something I've noticed lately, and tell me if you've noticed this too, and I must, I have to confess it drives me crazy. <laughs> it's a new direction, and I blame the directors, uh, because everyone's wearing a microphone, uh, whenever they're doing an, like an intimate scene or something serious, they have people just facing each other and talking, so that the audience sees nothing but profiles, mm-hmm. and so you can't see their eyes, you can't see their mouth. You, you can hear them, but there's, I think it, for me, it kind of alienates me as, as being in the audience. I mean, they do this a lot now, uh, where they stay in that position for quite a while. Of course, when I started in the business, you, you didn't wear a microphone. I was, one of my first few big jobs were with the New York City Opera, and then I did musicals there. You know, this gigantic theater. Mm-hmm. But you had to make sure that you, aimed your face out quite often, you know, and that even got to be where you really had to pick and choose times to make sure that the audience could see you, see you, yeah. see your face. Have you noticed that? Very much. It may not bother it's very much so, and it is it is disturbing. Because, and I think it takes a lot out of an actor's infusing their personal performance, their yeah. their personal self. And I am now. Oh. I'm getting nasty nasty hand signals from my sound <laughs> engineer, Nancy. We're out of time. Oh shoot! Because I didn't really address his question. Anyway, when you really feel that immediacy, when you know you're connecting with the audience, there's nothing, nothing, nothing like it. Uh, Wow. And it, it, it really makes you thrive to be better. And, and uh, anyway, oh, well, so we're out of time. Okay. Yeah, oh, sure. everybody, okay. Can, every, everybody can see how much better you are if they come to the Saban on May 9th for Stage LA to Broadway from Hollywood yes. with Love. Thank you for telling everybody about it. It's real important. Thank it's you. It's very important. Thank yeah. you so much, you. Nancy. And I'll see you, you on bet. the 9th. Okay, it's a, it's a deal. Okay. Bye, honey. Bye. And. That's it. We are out of time. And we will be back next week. I'll have Jake Simpson with me, I think. I think I will have John Huertas. Castles. Javi. I am. This is almost as exciting as Alan Tudyk. I'm sorry. I'll see you in two. 
And you'll see me in two because you're going to be off and being a good son. Yes. And uh, that week maybe we'll be talking about a few other things, and we'll pick up next week with some more on Kill Me Three Times, Age of Adeline, and we'll start talking about Inside Out for Pixar. That's it. It's a wrap.